This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley and is part eight of Revealing the Heart of God, A Journey Through the Minor Prophets. So there's a famous athlete that you've probably never heard of. His name is Daryl Verosko, nicknamed The Flea. Anybody ever heard of him? No. You want to guess what sport he played or participated in? It involved water. It involves danger. It involves boards. It involves waves. He was a surfer, a famous surfer. Sports Illustrated did an article about him, and they described Daryl the Flea riding this 40-foot wave, catching and riding this 40-foot wave. Now imagine that. Imagine you're riding that. And here's how it described it. His whole body looked utterly relaxed, though he was being chased by a wave big enough to kill him. I love that image of this guy riding this 40-foot wave that could kill him, and yet there's such joy and aliveness in his face as he's riding this. Surfers don't create the waves, but when they come, they get on and they ride them. When the long story of the church and the Bible, the spiritual equivalent of riding a 40-foot wave is called revival. Revival is when God sends a wave into our life, into our midst, a wave of his presence. And it comes, he brings it. We don't necessarily stir it up, but he brings it into our midst. And his presence is so holy that it could kill us. But instead, he invites us to get on and to ride it and to go to places we never imagined, deeper places of joy in Christ, deeper places of mission, deeper places of love and compassion. Now, if you're trying to follow Jesus today, or if you're not trying very hard at all by your own admission, you have probably learned something the hard way. And that is, we tend to drift in our spiritual life. We tend to stagnate. We tend to go numb. We tend to stop moving forward. We tend to stop catching waves. Or if I could switch images, it's like a fire that begins to die down. And the coals just are almost dead. And it's just cold. And from time to time, we need Jesus to breathe new life into us, to rekindle us, to restart that fire. That is called revival. And when it happens to a whole group of people, it can have profound personal but also social impact. Deep social wounds can be healed when revival comes among a group of people. I know my, our friend, Pastor Michael Wright, African-American pastor that we partner with, he's told me many times, he said, the only, ultimately the only solution to the deep wound of racism in this country is going to be revival. Revival coming among God's people. Revival is in the background of the first reading that you heard from the little book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is in this section called the Minor Prophets, 12 little books 
of prophets, Jewish prophets. Our Jewish friends call it the Book of the Twelve because it's, they really go together. Zephaniah is in our series on the minor prophets. Here's a little historical background. So about 630 years before Jesus was born, Israel, the nation of Israel, was split into actually two separate nations, basically. The northern kingdom, called Israel, had already been invaded, captured. Many of its leaders had been hauled into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, had not yet been invaded, but there were some dark clouds on the horizon. And Zephaniah is speaking into those dark clouds and saying, don't think you're invulnerable. Don't think you're above this. Don't think you're better than the northern kingdom. What happened to them could happen to you unless you wake up. They were led by a young king named Josiah. I mean, really young. He was eight years old when he became king. Any of you got an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old? Any of you eight years old out there? Imagine being king of a country. It's pretty scary. Well, actually, Judah did quite well. He must have had some smart people around him. In the 18th year of his reign, now he's 26 years old, there was a priest who was just sort of poking around in the temple, the place where they worshipped. And he stumbled upon this dusty old book. And it was their Bible. And Josiah said, Let's, why don't you read it to me? And he started reading from the book of Deuteronomy. And Josiah was so stricken with grief and repentance that he tore his clothing. He said, oh my gosh, we are so far from where we're supposed to be spiritually. And a revival broke out. They caught a 40-foot wave, and the people together began to ride it. Now, Zephaniah probably came either before this discovery of the Bible or right in the middle of it. And this is, I think, a little manual on revival, a tiny little manual on revival. Now, I want us to notice where we're going with this because there's a, there's a direction to this. It's going somewhere. Chapter 3, verse 17, let me read this to you because we'll come back to this. Chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's the, where we're going to end. And I think that's where every revival ends, is an outpouring of God's personal and corporate love for us. But it's going to take a while to get to us. Actually, in your bulletin on page 11, I have a little diagram, and this is basically the outline of my sermon. And the diagram on page 11 basically goes like this, confession of sin, which leads to a humble people, which leads to an outpouring of God's love. Now, God can send revival any way we want, but it seems like revival has those three parts to it, no matter when it comes or how it comes. So the first one is a confession of sin. Every revival starts with an encounter with the holiness of God that leads God's people to say, man, God, there's some really bad stuff I got to deal with in my life. And God says, you're right. Let me help you with that. It is so easy to move so quickly from saint to sinner in your Christian life. 
I mean, I was driving to church this morning. I was in a spirit of prayer for all of you and for this sermon. You have no idea what a holy state I was in as I was driving. I stopped at this light. It's a red light. The person in front of me has her blinker on, but she's not turning. I'm thinking, what a horrible driver. Why don't you just turn? Getting ready to blare the horn, and all of a sudden the light turns. It's like how quickly we can go from holy state to just having a horrible attitude. That is why confession of sin, repentance and confession are not some weird thing for bad, really bad people. It's a lifestyle. It's something we do all the time. Notice what Zephaniah does in this, in this book, if you go back and read it, because he does two things. He starts with sort of the global picture. I will sweep away the whole earth. And then he gets very local and very personal. He starts with the rulers. He starts with the priests. He starts with the politicians. And then he moves to everyone. Let me just start, pick up on one of the things he accuses the people of. Verse 12. Zephaniah says this, chapter 1, verse 12, at that time the Lord says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Literally, the word complacent there, and you can see it in the little tiny footnote, the, literally the word there is talking about the dregs on the bottom of a bottle of wine or a wine barrel. You know, it just sits there. When it sits there, when it's not stirred, when it's immobile, the dregs just go to the bottom. This is the complete anti-revival state of mind, which I think infects all of us from time to time. It is the state of mind that says, God, leave me alone. I just want to be a dreg at the bottom. I don't want to get stirred up. I don't want to get shaken. I am very happy right where I'm at being a dreg. The same attitude was expressed in chapter 3, verse 2. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. It affected their worship. It got into the way they worshiped. So they started a little bit of God, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of the true living God, a little bit of Milcom, mixing it together. The human heart craves something to worship, something that is ultimate, something that we will devote ourselves to. For them it became the God Baal. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, chapter 1, verse 4. Now notice, it starts with the priests. It starts with the spiritual leaders. It says, your heart is wrong. That's why this is a very scary passage for me to read this week. Who was Baal? He was a Canaanite deity of prosperity and fertility. And Baal worship, if you wanted to have a good life through Baal, it was required that you participate in repeated and ritualized acts of immorality. So 
sexuality and worship became all mixed together, became enmeshed, and that's what they were involved in. Verse 11. He says, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. It's talking about people, business people, people, merchants and traders, people that were good at making money, people that were good at developing a life of luxury. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money. Some people, it's a gift. It's, it can be a wonderful thing to, to create wealth, to create businesses, to create jobs. But these people ignored the plight of the poor, and they turned their wealth into their personal security blanket. You read through the book of Zephaniah, it's not a pretty picture. And you'll notice Zephaniah and all of the prophets, all of the minor prophets and the major prophets, they're really intense. Look at verses 14 and 15. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter, and the mighty man cries out aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. God is really intense in the book of Zephaniah. Now, how are we supposed to read this? Is God royally ticked off? Is he waiting to just pounce on us? Well, look at it this way. Who, do we, who sometimes makes us the most angry? It's sometimes our enemies, but sometimes it's the people we love the most. And some cultures are really good at expressing a sort of love-fueled anger towards people they loved. When I moved to Long Island as this sort of British, German background, Minnesota boy, I was shocked to meet these Jewish people, Italians and Greeks, who like, when they were angry, they actually let you know and it like shocked me. Why were they angry? Because they hated me? No, because they told me, it's because I, I love you. It's because it's, it's about intimacy. I want intimacy with you. That's what I'm after. And this is how we get it. This is how we go after it. So when God sees us twisting ourselves, when God sees us involved in wretchedness, when God sees us dehumanizing ourselves or other people, yeah, there's anger. But here's the thing about God's anger in the Bible. God does not delight in anger. God delights in showing mercy. It never says he delights in showing anger. But it does say he delights in showing mercy. Anger is a wake-up call. For Zephaniah's day, it was a wake-up call that judgment is coming. It happened in the northern kingdom, and you're saying it'll never happen to you. As Americans, I think we've got to be honest. We can't say, oh, that would never happen to us. America's going to go on forever. We're going to be blessed and anointed by God forever. That is, God has never promised that. It's a wake-up call. The first step is re for revival, then, is not to just try harder, not to just conjure up feelings, but it's to come and meet Jesus at the cross where there is forgiveness for people that come and are repentant. Where at the cross, our sins have already been judged and swept away and burnt away, and they're gone, and we don't have to carry them anymore. But we have to come and be honest with the Lord about where we're at. So when we confess our sins, it, it actually 
seems to lead to something next, and that's part of the arc of this, this book, chapter 2. He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. And let me skip, skip down to verse 2, or verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. When we're confessing our sins, when we're being real and honest and open to the Lord and to one another, it makes us humble. It creates a humble people, people that are open to the Lord. Zephaniah does something really interesting in this, in this verse, chapter 2, verse 1. He talks about, he says, gather together, O shameless nation. He's talking about Judah. He uses the word goy. And the word goy was for non-Jewish nations. So in Zephaniah's day, goyim would, was the word for people that are not Jews. And sometimes it was used in a derogatory sense. Like, you're not us. You're not like us. You're not good enough like us. You're not the chosen people like us. They had a superiority attitude toward. And Zephaniah says, no, we're, we're the goyim. We're just like them. We're not any better. We have no ground for moral superiority. Humbles, levels the playing field. But notice something about humility. Humility is not weak. It's not passive. I think a lot of us are afraid that humility is going to turn us into sort of mousy doormat kind of people. Notice three times he says, seek. Seek. All you humble of the land who do his commands, seek righteousness. Seek humility. Seek the Lord. Humility is active. Humility is dynamic. Humility puts us on a quest. It opens our heart. It opens us to the Lord. It opens us to a life of adventure with him. I love this uh, verse from the book of Romans, translated in the Message Bible. It says, the resurrection you, life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending thing. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? I love that. That's the way humble people live. They greet God every day with a childlike expectancy. What's next, Papa? You know, my uh, daughter and son-in-law and three grandkids lived with me the past couple months. We figured out it was 67 days. They counted. I didn't count. So we had five extra people in the house. It was crazy, but it was, it was awesome. And it actually gave me a wonderful opportunity to defect, to, defect, to <laughs> connect is what I meant to say. <laughs> Don't tell Bonnie I said that. Connect with my grandkids, especially my youngest grandson, Gus. So Gus and I have just never really been buddies, but like we connected. We spent a lot of time together. And he got, we got really close. When they moved to their new house, I dropped by to visit them and reconnected with Gus. And then Bonnie sent me a video of after I left, Gus was at the big picture window with his sippy cup banging on the window going, Papa, Papa, Papa. I love that. 
That's what humble people are like. They're like, Papa, Papa, Papa. The anti-revival state of mind is to be like a drag at the bottom. Revival is like catching a wave. It's like going somewhere with Jesus. It's like, where do you want to take me, Lord? I want to open my life to you. And then it leads to the third stage, which is an outpouring of God's love. Look at verse 17 again. I wish I could have had time to go through all of verses 14 to 20 because they're so heartbreakingly tender and passionate and beautiful. And it's God speaking to us. It's God speaking to you. This is where I want to be with you, says God. I know you got some stuff in your life that you have to confess and repent of, but this is where I want to get to. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Let me just say, we are desperately looking for this kind of love. We are desperately searching for someone that will know us in all our brokenness and all our confusion and all our doubt and all our sin and all our questions and all our anger and all of our rebellion and all of our lust, and yet they still love us. They still pursue us. But here's the problem. Here's what we do. And we're restless. We're restless till we get that love. But here's what we do. We put it on something else, or we put it on someone else, a future romantic partner, or our um, temporary hookups, either online or in person, or we put it on a child, or we put it on a spouse, or we put it on a friend. We put that restlessness on them, and no human being was ever meant to bear the weight of that restlessness. And so the living God speaks to us in this book that understands us so well, that knows our hearts so well. And I think as a Christian, we can hear the voice of Jesus speaking these words over us. I am the Lord your God in your midst. I'm a mighty one. I'm not going away. I'm here. Maybe by all accounts, I should go away, but I'm not. I'm here. And I'm a mighty one. I'm a warrior. I'm going to fight for you. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Was he just passively being blindly led? He was fighting for us. He was fighting for our salvation. He was fighting against the powers of darkness. He was fighting for us. The Lord your God is in your midst. I see the worst about you, and I'm still here. I'm still your pursuer. I will rejoice over you. I love that phrase. Someone has said that the essence of love is simply this phrase, is to say, look to another human being, look them in the eye and say, it is good that you are here. Not because you do something for me, not because I get something out of this, but it is just good that you are here. I will rejoice over you, the Lord says. I will quiet you with my love. God says, I think, you're so noisy. Your head's so noisy. Your heart is so noisy. You can't rest. You're not quiet inside. You just, you're always playing with your phone. You're always going this way. You're always going that way. You always got some huge distraction in your life. This is noise, noise, noise. You can't even hear yourself think, let alone hear me. And God says, I want to quiet you with my love. I want to quiet your heart. 
I want to bring you to sanity again. I will exalt over you with loud singing. We work so hard to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to exalt ourselves, to make ourselves look good. And God says, that's not the way to get what you're looking for. It's to receive something from me. Me, I want to exalt over you with loud singing. And then that love pierces through. That's where revival is going. And when it, I said, when it impacts a whole group of people, stuff happens. Quasi-Christians get fully converted. Sleepy Christians wake up. Hurt and wounded Christians get healed. Non-Christians get curious. And like I said, it can have impact that ripples out into society. I had two 20-something guys show up in my neighborhood this past couple weeks ago. They were selling a pest control service. I'll call it Pest Be Gone. And so one of the guys shows up at my door. I'll call his name Bobby. And I tell Bobby we're talking, and he says, I, I, I say, you know, Bobby, honestly, I'm just not interested. And he goes, great sales line. He goes, well, you really kind of seem interested. And I say, well, yeah, that's just because I'm nice. And, and he takes advantage of that, and he exploits that, and he keeps being persistent. So finally, I buy the package. <laughs> so we're sitting on my front porch, signing the contract that I didn't really want. And I say, I, we start talking about his life. And he says, he pauses, and he says, well, I don't know what, I, he knows, has no idea what I do or what I believe or anything. And he says, um, I don't know what you believe. I don't know where you're at. But two years ago, Jesus Christ showed up, and he just completely changed my life. And I say, how intriguing. Tell me more about this Jesus fellow. What happened? And so he tells me this whole story. He says, I was living on the Texas-Mexico border. I was running drugs for a Mexican cartel. I was making big money, and I was also using heavily. And he looks like the guy that's had a really rough life. He says, I'm sitting in a hotel room. I am not interested in God. It's not on my radar at all. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and he says, Bobby, come to me. Finish with this stuff. Come to me. And he says, I start arguing with Jesus right there. And then all of a sudden, I feel like the arms of Jesus wrapped around me. And I just feel this overwhelming sense of love, and I just can't resist it, and I just break. And so I give my life to him. So that's what I'm doing. I'm working my tail off, and I'm trying to be a better father to my son, and I'm trying to be a better man. So I was glad I bought the package. So. And then he shows me his arms. And on one arm, he's got the word sinner tattooed, big letters. And the other arm, he's got the word saint tattooed on his arm. I loved that. I'm not going to get tattoos, but if I did, I, that would be pretty cool. I like that. I ask if I can pray for him. So I tell him a little bit about my story now. I ask if I can pray for him. He says, sure. So we start praying. And the other guy from Pest Be Gone sees what's going on. He says, hey, what are you guys doing? Are you praying? I want in on this. So he comes up on my porch. So we're all just huddled around each other. And we're just praying. 
I'm just asking the Lord to pour out his blessing on these two young guys, that the Lord would just guide them and strengthen them for the journey ahead of them. And I think to myself after this, this keeps happening to me. If you've heard my sermons throughout the years, I just keep having these crazy encounters with people in my front yard. These people with crazy stories who have been to crazy places and they've met Jesus in crazy ways. It just keeps happening. They just keep coming to me. And I think, well, maybe it's because I can bless them. And I was thinking about this verse and I thought, you know what? I think it's because the Lord wants to bless me. The Lord wants to speak to me through Bobby. This crazy guy who was two years ago running drugs for a cartel. I think God wants to say, Matt, like Bobby, you got to turn from your sins. Like Bobby, you need to humble yourself. Like Bobby, I want to wrap my arms around you. Where are you this morning? Is God sending a wave? It doesn't have to be a 40-foot wave. Maybe this is a foot wave. Maybe that's all you we can handle sometimes is a wave of a foot but God has a word for you maybe there's a repentance you need to do maybe there's a humbling that's taking place and you're resisting it but I would say for everybody God wants to pour out his love to you in a personal way and you might say not me I'm too unworthy I, my heart is too hard. I'm too cynical. I'm too hurt. I've been too wounded. I'm too confused. I got too many questions. Don't decide that. God is sending a wave. Catch on. Ride it. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's his big invitation. Come. Receive his love. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.